Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to familiar faces and scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community to the Faith Matters program. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. In terms of very brief introductions, of course, to my right is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's the president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. And to his right is, of course, Maulana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who's a missionary, senior missionary here, and of course, head of the French desk in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen, once again. We're going to quickly travel across the world to the subcontinent, to India, in fact, and welcome and say salam to Arslan Rahman Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Arslan Sahib. Thank you for your uh, question. He writes about um, a practice which I must admit, when I saw the question, I was un familiar with, so it's a new one on me, um, but apparently there is a practice which is undertaken for the past 500 years, and it's concerning a Muslim shrine in Western India, and he said this practice continues to this day. And basically, gentlemen, what it is, it's a child are, t are taken to the top of a building and then thrown down onto a bedsheet, uh, which is held by men, and he suggests it's about 50 men, uh, feet as a drop. And, um, and then it's passed through the crowd to their mothers. The parents then uh, sort of show the baby proudly as a strong brief, uh, strong reflection of their own belief in this particular practice. And it's apparently, uh, you know, one of those things that encourages luck, courage, strength for the baby and their future life. Now, he says this is an annual celebration which is observed in the Indian state of uh, Maharashtra by both Muslims and Hindus and also takes place in other villages. Is there any place in any kind of, for such traditions in Islam, Dr. Saab? Well, human life is very precious and dear, and uh, I can not think of putting a child's life in danger by actually throwing them off ledge. It's quite, I mean, I, as I said, it's not a practice yeah. that I was aware of, and there are obviously old cultural practices. But certainly within, from an Islamic sense, I think it's quite clear in our questioner probably knows that, that there's no basis in Islam. Mm. But it, does, it is quite shocking, actually, to observe that mm. parents would endanger their lives of their children. Absolutely, yeah. In such a way. But as, as far as Islamic basis is concerned, we are absolutely sure on that, that neither the Holy Quran nor the traditions of the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa uh, there is any proof of uh, such acts. But life is precious. Our children are very precious to us, and we obviously want the best for them and we want the best future for them. Mm -hmm. And we do try, uh, as far as is possible, to make sure that they get that upbringing and we do our utmost to make sure that Allah protects them. You see, after all, it is the protection of God Almighty. I mean, uh, every, everything good that comes to man, everything good that will come to our offsprings, comes from Allah the Almighty Himself. So, in fact, it is to Him that we should be turning 
and uh, praying for the child uh, and for their um, for their good future uh, in their in their life to come that can be done either through prayers and that is something that every muslim does for their children and continues to do so but it can also come through uh, charitable donations charitable sacrifices that one one does make and that is actually in in the traditions of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that when a child is born that we actually perform what is called the akika ceremony where the sacrificial goat to go to or, or an animal is sacrificed uh, for the for the for the child mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, this is a form of uh, protection uh, to allah uh, uh, appeasement to allah the almighty for protection of the child's future so this is something that muslims do do that they sacrifice an animal and they can continue that practice throughout their life in giving charity in order for allah to protect that child so these are practices that are found in islam and for every parent this forms an important basis for bringing up their children so from birth that is something that is recommended and that continues throughout the life of the child but to endanger your child in this practice or any other types of practice and the other thing that we have to understand is that arsalan has actually educated us that this practice does go on in india and he has said that it goes on near to a muslim shrine and many a time these innovations have come into islam that muslims will go to the shrines of revered personages in the past and will actually pray to the shrines and to the personages that uh, they are turning their attention for prayers to to these people that again is contrary to the teachings of islam is that we only pray to allah the almighty and that prayer we can do any way that we need when we go to a shrine we do pray for the person that is buried there but we do not pray to them so that is an important thing and the fact that this is done near a shrine may also have that sort of background to it so one should stay clear of such practices they do not form part of islam and the promised messiah alayhi salam actually was sent by god almighty in order to remove mm -hmm. the innovations the bidah that is as it is called from islam and to unravel islam to its pristine beauty so that man would recognize and revert back to true islam zakumna doctor sir jangir sir just a sort of a sort of an additional point on this uh, as i was reading through the question indeed doctor sir's answer it, we celebrate obviously the azia as a form and it's called the eid of sacrifice and that also uh, is a particular sign where prophet abraham was instructed to sacrifice his son um and this is something christians and uh, the jewish faith also recognize there's a bit of dispute over whether it was isaac or ishmael but nevertheless the principle remains yet even at that juncture god almighty demonstrably saw the love prophet abraham for had for god almighty and following his obedience and also in the son um in following the obedience to his father yet he was stopped in an animal sacrifice now some may draw some Wrong conclusions from that that this is again demonstrable of sacrificing and putting your child's life on the line and what we're doing here is doing much the same well we ha we have to remember first of all that this was a a, a dream which he'd seen sure. and what we see in dreams is not necessarily you know we don't necessarily have to bring it uh, into reality mm -hmm. as it was seen in the dream there was a metaphorical meaning behind it which god explained to abraham after he'd seen this uh, dream may peace be upon him several times and he understood then that actually he would have to sacrifice his son by leaving him in a place 
for a specific purpose, which we don't need to go into right now because it's a very yeah. long uh, subject. But people might uh, think that the sacrifice, the act of sacrificing an animal uh, on behalf of a child or for the protection of a child might seem a little bit like, you know, what certain an animistic uh, kinds of, uh, you know, peoples or nations do today. For example, we, they, they might make a parallel between offering an animal to, to God, so to say, in, in Islam, and the offering of, uh, for example, uh, sweetmeats, you know, to, to another god, for example, of the, uh, a Chinese deity, for example, the, the dragon god, every year uh, there is a, a kind of a, a rice and honey-based, you know, uh, sweetmeat which is made, which is very sticky and very sweet. And the logic behind it is that we make it very sweet so that the dragon god is appeased and he doesn't send down ill fortune mm. upon us during the year. Mm. But it's also very sticky so that even if he isn't appeased, he won't be able to open his mouth to actually curse us. So there is a different philosophy going behind here. It's not at all in the same sense that we, we sacrifice animals for Allah, Allah's sake, because he himself says that neither their flesh nor their blood reaches God. It's your piety that reaches God. And we must remember, all the sacrifices that are made in Islam of animals are in fact for charity. They're, they're, uh, divide, the meat is divided up among the poor who don't have the means to eat good food. And so we look after Allah's creatures and we say, Allah, please also look after my child, you know, because I'm doing this, so you please do this. So it's, it's, it's to show that you, you are willing to go that extra mile, you see. As, to, as far as this practice is concerned, I wanted to say that there is one lucky aspect to it, and it is that the child is alive at the end of it. That's the only lucky thing which comes out of it. Otherwise, the Qur'an says specifically, do not throw yourselves ila tahluka, to destruction, into destruction. So this is a, of course, a, I mean, imagine if they miss. What will happen? That will hardly be a lucky event. No, but indeed. people should not do things to their children. We've seen other people, for example, they hold snakes over the heads of their mm. children and all kinds of you know, weird and wonderful things which they think will bring them luck or auspiciousness or prosperity you know, during the year. But these are just putting their, their own children in danger. And this is totally forbidden in Islam. Anything dangerous, in fact, is forbidden in Islam. Anything that harms human life, which is not conducive to you know, betterment of, of human beings, is forbidden in Islam. Our thanks also to Arslan. I, I think he'd actually sent in a YouTube link of this practice, again, to qualify that the practice still takes place. Um, but as has been made absolutely abundantly clear that this is certainly has no basis in Islam. And um, I do hope the people who indulge in such practice reflect on what they're actually putting the poor child through. Um, thank you, um, Arslan. And we're going to move to our next question, which comes from Farhan Sahib in Germany. Uh, it's a quite a straightforward question, which is, I've heard from some people that when having a meal, we should not talk. Is this a correct Islamic tradition, Dr. Sir? Well, I mean, when we were all growing up and we all have this experience is that uh, our parents, our mothers in particular, mm. would tell us not to speak with a full mouth of food. So that is a common etiquette of eating is that we should not be having a mouthful of food and oh, trying to engage reasons, for practical, it might be falling out, you exactly. mean, and going all over the table. And so, other people. And onto <laughs> other people, how unhygienic. Yes, so that, that is an important etiquette for eating. But at the same time, the, the sustenance, the food that is given to us, we have to pay particular attention to it 
be thankful to Allah for that. So in that, in essence as well, we should remember that God has provided us with, with that food and we should think about it rather than being in the world that we are today. Fast food perhaps does not come into that sort of criteria. But we should always make sure that we are thankful to God for what we are eating. But there is no bar as such that if we have to say something to someone and you do not have a mouthful of food at that time that you can carry on a conversation with someone. So it's a combination of those two factors that we have to consider that it is common etiquettes that we do not speak with a full mouth but while we are having a meal we can converse with people around us and that is totally permitted. And uh, for that, Dr. Saab, and Nangesh Saab, just as an additional point, of course, Islam does prescribe certain prayers, uh, certain etiquettes, as Dr. Saab said, just not about you know speaking with your mouth open. I think that's good manners, generally speaking, as well. You mean with your mouth full? Well, with your mouth full. Yes. I said mouth open. I said, <laughs> you're quite right. Yes, it would be, would it not? <laughs> well, I suppose they do try, don't they? But nevertheless, it's, it, there are certain prescribed uh, prayers and also prescribed etiquettes which do apply within when eating of a meal. And, um, there are, uh, but the, the thing is, as Dr. Saba said, between mouthfuls there's no harm in saying a few words you to, to your, the people sitting near you. The Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu himself has, it's on record that he was speaking while he was eating sometimes. Mm -hmm. We don't know if he always did it, but on some occasions he certainly did. Um, so the, the etiquettes for eating are, for example, if you're all eating in a communal plate, the Holy Prophet Muhammad said, first of all, you need to wash your hands before you come to eat, because the, the, the default position in eating is eating with one's hands. Not everybody has knives and forks and spoons and all that. And so if you do need to, you know, to eat with your hands, you have to come with clean hands. Also, he said, you must eat with your right hand. Uh, there is some debate on how many fingers one should, should use. According to some, the Sunnah is three fingers only. But in some cultures in Islam, we see that the whole hand is used without going into who does it and who doesn't. But uh, this is a minor point. However, the Prophet ﷺ specifically said, eat only of what is in front of you. That means there might be some tastier looking you know, morsels around the dish. You mustn't reach over and take the, the morsels that apparently belong to somebody else. That's also part of the etiquette. So these are very basic etiquettes which people should comply with. But, but apart from that, the most important thing is to, to ask for Allah's blessing on the food. We say, Bismillahi wa ala barakatillah. In the name of Allah and with Allah's blessing. So that's when we start. And when we end, we, we, we thank Allah. We say, Alhamdulillahi amana wa saqana wa ja'alana min al-Muslimin. All praise to Allah who has fed us and who has given us to drink and who has made us submissive to Him, Muslims in other words. And so the Prophet Muhammad said that if you, if you should forget to say that, then at the end you should say Bismillahi Awaluhu Akhiruhu. So in the name of Allah, in the beginning of it, on the end of it, and so, you know, that will kind of cover up for what you missed. But it's good to eat after having said a prayer and to thank Allah after. So this is in common with many faiths who also do the same. And in fact, in Islam, because now you brought the subject up, it's an interesting topic to see. Once uh, Hazrat Khalifa Rabeh was, uh, was saying that when he was a student in England, um, he was eating you know, with an English family and the lady of the house was uh, adamant that she was going to make him become a Christian. <laughs> so she was never letting any occasion go by without you know, trying to impress him with the Christian teaching. So she said that we Christians, before we eat, 
always start with a prayer, with a blessing. And he said, well, that's very nice. And he said uh, something to the effect of, we in Islam start everything with a prayer, <laughs> not just when we eat. Everything we do has a prayer specific to that you know, thing. And so you know, the, the, the matter ended there. Yes. Well, I think Jazakumullah and you know, these etiquettes are something and I think uh, are important to reflect on, too often forgotten. Um, there's general etiquettes and as Jung uh, Hee just illustrated, um, yeah, etiquettes which are specific or specific commandments of God Almighty as well. And the other thing, you know, the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to um, never eat to your maximum amount, always leave space. And also eat, put that in your, you know, as we often tell our children, only put that in your plate that you're going to be content to finish and you can always go back again and have some more. And I think mm. it's important that these things, I've said about children, but sometimes it's important adults revisit these things as well. My thanks to uh, Farhan Saab for that uh, very practical question as well. Um, our next question is right here from London. It comes from Imran Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum. Um, his question relates to um, sort of medical surgery, I suppose that's where it's sort of sentence. He's asking that when a patient has to get some parts of his body's removed or am amputated, if for example he has a leg which has to be cut off in surgery, what should be done according to Islamic teachings, Dr. Sahib? Well, you, you, you may have to go along with what is practice in wherever you're living, for instance. That, I think, may take precedence as well. Because if you're in England and you're in, uh, you have a part of your body amputated, then the hospital may insist that they are the ones who are responsible for disposing of that part so that there is no problems of health and safety and cross-contamination and, and so on. So hospitals actually will insist that they will be responsible for that and often we will find that they either incinerate them uh, in, in, the, in the hospital or are disposed of by companies who actually dispose of these. However, if you are permitted by the hospital, by the authorities in other parts of the world perhaps, then one should bury the part that has been removed and make sure that, that, that it is buried deep in, in the ground and not affected around the, around the site. So, Islam, obviously, as we know, prefers burial as far as opposed to cremation. So that is something that is the recommended practice, that the body part should be buried if possible. If not, then the hospital will dispose of it according to their own regulations. And we may not have a say as far as that is concerned. It may be part of law of the country that we live in. And Islam recognizes the law of the country that we live in. And in that instance, we would have to abide by that, that instance. The only, the, the only thing that comes to my mind is that sometimes Muslims feel that the person who has been buried in this world will be raised up in that very same form in their hereafter. And so this may be on the back of someone's mind who has had to have a leg amputated, an arm amputated or whatever, is that because they will be missing that body part when they were sent to the grave, that perhaps in the hereafter they will also be without that body part. We must, as far as Islam is concerned, our teachings are concerned, we are sure that we will not be in our bodily forms in the life hereafter. It will be a spiritual rebirth and therefore that physical body that we have here today is not of relevance as far as our burial is concerned. 
just as another point on this, John Gusarp as well, there's no sort of formal ceremony around this and there's no, the other thing was, which was, has been raised previously is that if a body part is buried in a particular place, place rather, if that person then subsequently, when he does pass away, that that person should then be buried in the same place. There's no... No, as Dr. Saba said, there's no link between, you know, the, any body part and the, and the rest of the body and that the soul will somehow not be raised properly because it needs to have been raised from the, the, the body as it was. Obviously not. There were some people who died in fires, some people died drowned, they're never found. Their bodies are dis they're just disintegrate or are eaten up by cr several creatures around, you know. And so that doesn't mean that they're not going to be raised. I think the last thing that they'd want to do, though, is to have it as an exhibit in their sitting room. <laughs> that would make for something quite eccentric. But I yes. think the, the, the main point is we need to dispose of it, you know, in a, in a proper way yeah. and follow the laws of the land. If they allow, then allow it, we should bury it. And if they don't, if they're going to incinerate it, we should just go along with that. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, and my thanks also to Imran for his question. Our next question comes from Salim Akhtasab in Canada. Jazakumullah, uh, and thank you for your kind remarks about Faith Matters and the program. As I've often said on the program, it's a, it's a great effort by the whole team. His question is uh, about Islamic jurisprudence. And he says, when according to Islamic jurisprudence is a marriage annulled? Dr. Saheb, over to you on this one. Uh, well, there are, th there, there are primarily two ways of getting a separation that uh, are common. Uh, one, of course, is the husband pronouncing the talaq, and the second is the wife seeking a khula. But there is a provision in jurisprudence for an annulment, and it's called fasqh uh, nikah, so that you can have an annulment of the nikah, and that can be on the instigation of either the husband or the wife, or in fact even somebody who is outside that, that as well. But it has to be uh, applied to, to a Qazi who will actually consider the reasons for seeking the annulment and the Qazi will then give a decision upon that. There are a number of reasons that have been quoted in jurisprudence by, uh, by way of which a person can ask for an annulment. For instance, if the husband, uh, I'll give you just a few examples of these, a large, long list of them. If the husband has gone missing for instance, and he is uh, believed to have disappeared completely. There's no sign of him uh, having carried out full investigations of missing persons and so on. He is still not to be found. Then the wife can ask for an annulment in that case. The second may be that the husband has gone into prison for a very long time, maybe a lifetime sentence, and he is not going to be around to fulfill his obligations as a husband. So the wife in that instance as well may ask for an annulment in, in that instance. If the husband is uh, sort of permanently sick as well uh, and, and therefore he is not again able to fulfill his marital duties, then the wife again can ask for an annulment in that. Uh, then there is uh, something which is called that the wife, when she has reached, reached maturity, sometimes in Islam what happens is that nikahs are contracted before maturity of, of a woman. However, uh, when she reaches maturity, then her consent has to be asked for again. And if at that point she does not wish to continue with that nikah, then she can ask again for an annulment in that instance. Um, and then the, the other opposing side can also be true as far as the wife is concerned. If the wife is, is, has, is sick long-term wise and, and not able to perform her duties, then again an annulment can be asked for by the husband. So there are specific reasons and they all come towards this central theme 
that either party is not able to carry on their married life because of these reasons which are not going to change and therefore the Qaza Qazi is asked for an annulment of the of the nikah and the Qazi then considers these in detail and gives a decision as far as that respect is concerned. There is the, the, the other difference between uh, perhaps the Lark and a Fasqa nikah is the waiting period after the annulment or talaq has been given. In talaq, there is a three-month waiting period after the talaq is given. In fasqa nikah, the waiting period, the iddat period, is one month before remarriage of the parties to someone else can take place. Just as an additional point on that, in terms of obviously when the talaq takes place, there are certain obligations in terms of the hakmer, the dowry and what have you, which should be the woman's right anyway. But what happens under such, consider are there considerations in annulment as well? Yes, hakmer is one of the factors that is considered uh, and uh, th that also depends upon the factors that were presented before the Qazi as the reasons for the annulment being sought in the first instance. And in many an instance, hakmer can sometimes be waived in that instance, but in other instances, hakmer may be payable. But that is dependent on case-per-case -case review, and the Qazi has to make a decision as far as that is concerned. Jazakumullah. Uh, Dr. Saeb, and my thanks also to Salim Akhtar Saab for his uh, question. Our next question comes from Sohail Arif Saab in India. Uh, Extends a warm assalamu alaikum, assalamu alaikum to you as well, Sohail Saab. Um, and he's asking Jahangir Saab that whether it's lawful under Islamic teachings to use human beings as subjects in experiments in order to discover treatments for diseases. I think he's, there is a practice which is actually quite commonplace around the world where they almost ask for, I mean, we would use the word as almost guinea pigs, you know, mm -hmm. well, well, human guinea pigs, yeah, mm -hmm. who are asked to volunteer to test out a new drug or a new particular sort of uh, remedy to a particular ailment. Is there a basis for it? Well, you see, Islam? if it's just that, then of course there's no harm in people coming forward to help other people, you know, as long as it's not putting their own lives in danger to, you know, to any degree, and it's relatively safe, then there's, there's, uh, there's no harm at all. Of course, there's always a slight possibility that the, the tests might go wrong because they are testing things on human beings after all, of and there's no telling where the test is going to lead them to. Uh, but uh, th it's not forbidden as such. However, using human beings for experiments means many things. It could also mean using fetuses, using embryos, etc. And there we, we enter a, a, a kind of a, you know, a, a zone, an area where you know, the, the ethics will come into play. Are these ethically Islamic or not, using embryos, for example? Mm. And uh, I remember uh, hearing Hazrat uh, Khalifa Rabeh, once he was saying that, um, especially in the very, very early stages of the formation of the, the zygote, and it's not even a fetus yet, he said that many a time they're formed and they're lost by the woman without her even knowing she was ev she'd even you know, con mm. conceived. Mm -hmm. And this is a natural process which happens all the time. So he said that perhaps... It may be, you know, permissible at the very, very early stages when it, you know, the, there is no soul in the, the, it's not really a human being per se yet to carry out certain tests on, in, uh, at this stage. But to go beyond that is the problem. And then where do you draw the line? That was the big problem. So he said that best avoid it anyway. 
and look for other means. And, and he was right, because now they're realizing that, they're, I mean, with the advance of, uh, of, of modern medicine, mm -hmm. there are other ways to actually carry out these tests. And many of the tests don't even need to be carried out on living beings at all. You know, you can get a, a relatively good result without even using living creatures as such and making them go through painful procedures, etc. Which are sometimes repeated, you know, ad nauseam for absolutely no reason when they already know what's going to happen, but they keep on carrying out the tests. Mm -hmm. So this is forbidden in Islam, causing suffering without any reason. So great care must be taken with the, the, the ethical aspect of this, uh, of this question. But um, it's for the, the, the doctors really to, to decide. And uh, if Muslims are living in a, in a country, as Dr. Saba said in a, for a previous uh, question, if they're asked to, you know, to, to participate in mm. something to, to a reasonable degree, which does not you know, go against the, the sanctity of life in Islam, mm. then it's permissible. But where, wherever the Muslims will see that this is threatening the sanctity of life, then they should refrain from it. Use but common sense. Absolutely. Mm. Well, at times there, are, there is a fine line, you know, because you, you're taught, for example, take a new uh, drug treatment which has come out, and the person is told that these are the perceived benefits, but there are also, you know, possible drawbacks. There, there may be other sort of issues which arise, which they're actually looking to sort of find more on. On that, those kind of sort of what I would call moral dilemmas that is the benefit going to outweigh the cost to my health? It's always a difficult line, you know, to sort of balance out. Yeah, that's very true. Um, basically, like I said, if, if people use their common sense mm. and they look at the, the ethics taught by Islam, then they should be able to find guidance in that on, on these issues. And uh, as long as it's, it regards adults, for example, presenting themselves as volunteers, there's absolutely no, no harm in that as long as it's not endangering them, you know, in any, in any, in any way. You know. This is a question for both of you, really. I suppose one of the issues which sometimes arises, and Young Yisab made this point as well, that was about testing and using life creatures and leaving human beings to one side. Uh -huh. There is a strong feeling, and there's moral and ethical issues on this, on animal testing, for example. Um, there is some on drugs treatments, but other times, for example, animals are also used for new cosmetics mm. or new mm. and such like. Where, from an Islamic perspective, again, where does, what does Islam say about this? Well, we know that the Holy Prophet was Rahmatulil Alameen. He was a mercy for the whole of the universe, and that actually uh, encompasses all life forms as such. And we know that during his lifetime, he was very particular to make sure that Muslims always were aware that animals had rights as well, and they were not trampled upon. So taking that argument forward, then we do realize that certainly any testing on animals has to be done in an ethical manner so that their harm is minimized as far as is possible. That is the most important thing. But as far as um, uh, treatments and medications are concerned, then animal testing, if it's going to be of benefit to mankind, who is a superior being after mm -hmm. all, then that is permitted in, the, in that sense as well. Because then the whole subject of the food chain comes into, in, into argument mm -hmm. as well, doesn't it? So ethical experiments must be carried out as far as it. But as, if it is done, as you say, for other things than for medical research, it, if it is for perhaps cosmetics, then that should not permissible as far as Islam is concerned.
But as far as human life experiments are concerned, and I think both of you have highlighted the fact that these have to be ethical mm. and make sure that there is no danger to human life as such. But if we look at the recent history, I mean, we're talking just of the 20th century. In America, these their experiments that were carried out on human beings were, you know, abhorrent. Yes. They were put at risk from infectious diseases and from radiation, and the American agencies carried these out full knowing what they were doing and the harm that was going to be uh, committed to these human beings. That was all because the consent was never uh, uh, made available in those days. And also the people who were undergoing the experiments were not told of the dangers that they were. The Nazi experiments are another example of the human experiments that were carried out. So I think Sohail Arif does raise an important question and looking at the history of man, this has been done in the past. Perhaps it continues to be done in some parts of the world, even today. But a, a buzzword that has come out in the, in the West is informed consent. Mm. That the person who is going to actually take part in these experiments has to be given the full facts, the full mm. knowledge of what he is letting himself in for. And if after having been given that, he makes the choice, yes, the, 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 the harmful effects are negligent, then he will, he will take part in, in that experiment. But the other thing that I think you touched upon, and I think I was going to say, if you look at the literature that comes to, with the medication sometimes that we take, and it will give you the benefits, but it will also give you a long list of the contraindications or the side effects that, that, that there may be. And uh, we obviously have to read these, and sometimes we think that are these really going to benefit us when there are these side effects. Mm. So because of experiments, we are aware that these uh, benefits and side effects do occur, but science then does tell them that the safety of these medicines is of importance and man is aware of these. There is just one thing which I'd like to say, one aspect, and it is that sometimes when there isn't anything else available, but you do have a prototype which could be administered, if the patient is uh, able to give his consent or her consent, or if not, if it's a child, then the parents or whoever is the guardian of the child, then it would not be you know, uh, inadmissible in Islam to go for that, even though it hasn't been tested properly. And interesting, interestingly enough, if I'm sitting here today, it's because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an outbreak of menin meningitis when I was a baby, and there were 10 of us at the time. Um, they didn't have anything that could cure us because we were, uh, we'd arrived at the, you know, the quite dangerous stages of it. And, my, and all the parents were offered uh, this prototype, which they said they can't guarantee is going to work, but if they signed for it, then they'd, they'd allow it. So my, of course, all the parents signed, you know, they gave their consent, and there were nine of them died, and only I survived. Mm. But the thing is, is that if you need to save your life, then sometimes you, you have to go for these things as well. And, mm. you know, so Islam is all about protecting life as much as possible. Anything which could be beneficial to human life should be resorted to as long as it's ethical, you know, as, as far as possible. We have proof of the uh, <coughs> benefits, benefits of human of experimentation. In, the, in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. It would be fair to say here in the UK, of course, Dr. Saab, you know, there's, you, you've recently had cases, you know, on cancer drugs, I think it was, whereby certain, whilst, you know, it's, they've been discovered, their potential is known and their benefits are known because they've yet to be approved by mm the appropriate authorities, they're still limited. So there are quite sort of checks and balances which are put in place prior to such things being made readily available.
Jazakumullah, gentlemen, for that, and my thanks also to Suhail Saab uh, for his question. Our next question comes from Farzana Khan in Germany. Assalamu alaikum, Farzana Saiba. Thank you for your question. Um, it's interesting. We're move, moving from experimentation to halal meat in the sense of <laughs> I talked about animal uh, experimentation. <laughs> but she's asking about the general concept of halal meat. Um, and whether it's just the slaughtering of the animal and the way it's done, um, or does it also take into uh, other considerations as well? I, I'd sort of add to this question by saying that there has been, certainly here in the UK again, there's been a lot of discussion over the last sort of couple of years over what qualifies as halal meat. Is it authentic halal meat? Indeed, you've got various people who are now making a business out of acting as accreditation agencies for halal meat as well. But first of all, maybe Dr. Saab taking the basis of her question. I mean, halal meat, of course, in its part in how the animal is slaughtered, but what are the general sort of conditions under which meat qualifies as being halal? Well, if you look at the Holy Quran, for instance, it describes to us what is halal and what is haram as far as our dietary requirements are concerned. Um, and for instance, something that dies of his own accord then that is not permit that is haram and that is not halal at all similarly blood although it doesn't come under the meat blood is har haram as such the swine of uh, the flesh of swine is also haram as far as the holy quran is concerned so taking that forward then the method of slaughtering is the next thing that that is 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 also part of what makes it halal the holy quran also takes uh, also mentions the fact that something that is slaughtered in the name of any other than Allah is also not halal. So when we are slaughtering an animal, it is the name of Allah that is pronounced while we are slaughtering the animal that does make it halal. Uh, halal. But just on that point, that, that's where the debate does rage, doesn't it? And that's a discussion I've often had, even with some of these accreditation agencies. How could you physically be at every single ritual, you know, the, the actual slaughter when the animal is taken and determine that the person performing that slaughter is actually reciting, you know, Allah's name at that time, and that that that's. There's also the other aspect that uh, the, the the food of the people of the book has also been made halal for us according to the Quran. So there's also that. Of course, they won't be saying Allah when they when they slaughter. But they'll be invoking, but they're the, invoking the same God, though the God of Abraham, etc. And they're if they're invoking Him yeah. at all. So mm. this is the thing, isn't it? Yes, but I'll allow Sorry. you to. Well, this is something that we have to. Uh, there are many slaughterhouses in the country and there are some slaughterhouses which we know that they will be uh, slaughtered in the way in which Islam promotes that to be slaughtered. Mm -hmm. So from, we would have to uh, lay our trust into the institution that is saying that this is a halal slaughterhouse and that a Muslim will be slaughtering the animal. He will be slaughtering it in the way that Islam has uh, taught and therefore we have to show trust to that. So the, the bodies that are passing these as halal or not halal, they are actually responsible for making sure that the guidelines of Islam are actually adhered to and followed in these places. So as a consumer at the end of the chain, the person who actually buys that mm -hmm. should have that trust in the, in the line, in the process, that certainly this has been done in the permissible way as far as Islam is concerned. From that, Dr. Sab, just picking up on the point you just made as well, that you know, 
the meat of those of the book and the Abrahamic faiths we're looking at specifically. And again, within Islam, uh, in an earlier program, I know we've discussed, uh, you know, the, the classic when you were giving the example of uh, the fourth Khalifa of Islam and how he said that in everything we do, we invoke the name of God before we start it. The same applies here. So. Again, in the meat, there's almost a, you know, a, a double lock safety mechanism, isn't there? That the meat in front of you, once it's been cooked and prepared and what have you, before you actually partake of that meat, again, you're saying a prayer uh, and invoking the name exactly. of God. So we should, when we buy meat, which is, for example, of course, halal will apply to kosher. Kosher is usually just as safe as the, the it's meat. slaughtered according to it's the It's exactly to the same ritual, etc., and uh, it's done by sharpening the knife, you know, so that the animal suffering is minimized, as is the, the, uh, the instruction of the Holy Prophet that's what, that's what we should do. We should minimize the stress to the animal to the maximum, to the degree that we shouldn't even let an animal waiting for slaughter see another animal being slaughtered. So there are all these, uh, you know, aspects which come into play. Um, but of course, and the question rises uh, here for us in the Christian country, or so-called Christian country, it's that there is a lot of meat which is supplied you know, by Christians also, it's not just Jews. And then what would be the ruling in that case? In that case, again, an investigation should be made to see whether the animals are actually, the blood is being let from those animals. In our experience, mostly, in the UK in particular, uh, larger animals from you know, sheep upwards would be uh, slaughtered in that way. So they would have, they would have their throats cut open and the, all the blood from the bodies would be let. Mm. In that sense, the, blood, the, the, the meat would be permissible to us if we pronounce the name of Allah on, on it, because they're not pronouncing the name of any other God over it anyway. But the only uh, problem is that they also stun the animal before they slaughter it. Now, if the stunning kills the animal before it actually does get slaughtered, I mean, uh, you know, has, has a thro its throat cut, then it would be not permissible for Muslims to eat, because one of the conditions which was uh, specifically mentioned in the Qur'an is that if an animal dies from a, a blow, then it will not be halal, it's haram. So this is a, a bit of a, you know, a, a conundrum. And how do we know if the animal actually died of the blow to the head or it actually died from having its throat cut? Usually what we see is that the animal is stunned and is not yet dead when it's being you know, actually slaughtered. So this is a fine line, so an investigation has to be carried out to see whether it, you know, it uh, com complies with the, the regulations to the degree that we can call it halal. Just as a final point before we move on to our next question, what about sort of hunt hunting and animals there, Dr. Sub? You know, if someone's partake in hunting, they've hunted an animal, they've shot it, and uh, is that permissible? The, the same thing applies that uh, when the hunter shoots the animal and he goes up to the animal, the hunter will have a knife with him, a Muslim hunter. He will actually slaughter the animal at that time and bleed it, uh, pronounce the name of Allah while he is doing that. And that is what is the recommended practice. Also for, I believe, birds of prey, uh, when they are shot as well, it, they, are, they are also slaughtered with the pronouncement of the there name of then. Allah. There, there and then. I mean, what, what they catch, of course, is... Uh, is uh, that will be slaughtered. Yes, yes. That, yes. yes that's right. And not the birds, the birds of prey themselves. No, 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 no. Themselves. not the yes. birds of prey. Yes, exactly. no, what yeah. they catch, bring back to the owner. Yeah. They, yeah. Will, they will be slaughtered, and that becomes It's actually said, you know, that even the dogs that you use yes. for hunting, yes, yes. if they start to eat out of the animal before you actually get there, 
it will still be all right okay. because this is part and parcel. They're being used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. So in that case, but otherwise, if, if the, a dead animal is found that a, another animal of prey has eaten out of, that would be forbidden because we don't know when it died, you know, how it was killed. We don't know anything of that. It's only what you, what you hunt yourself, you see. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, and my thanks also to Farzana Khan Saiba for her question. We'll move on to our last question for the program, which, uh, appropriately enough, is from the UK. And it comes from Wasim Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for your kind comments. An interesting uh, question from Wasim Saab, and it's about what is the Islamic view on old age? He then goes on to ask, why does it exist and would it be not be better if there was no old age and related suffering? I think, you know, we, we all hope to stay as young as possible, but uh, there's also something in the uh, uh, adage, isn't there, about uh, growing old gracefully as well and accepting that with age there's certain things you can't do. But Jang Yusab, you know, is there an Islamic view on old age? I mean, there's etiquettes about how the elderly should be treated and the respect yes. accorded. Well, Allah says, "Kullu man Everything on earth is, you know, going to be destroyed. It's going to disappear. It's going to to die one day. Kullu nafsin da'iqatul maut. Every soul will taste of death. So this is part of the the, the natural order of things. And uh, I don't know why we need to have an Islamic view on old age. It's a it's a it's a given. Everything is born. It starts young and it becomes old and it has a lifetime. It can't live beyond that and then it passes on. So, you know, all the, the faculties within the body start slowing down and they start, you know, the cells replicate themselves less and less well. Mm -hmm. And so eventually the system can't keep going on and then it, it's the end. This is how it is. So, as you said, I think you answered it to a large degree when you said, you know, what you said about, you know, growing old gracefully, mm -hmm. that people should accept this as, as a fact of life. And although people do many things to try to remain as young as possible, which is not forbidden as such, but they shouldn't become obsessional about it as they are in certain countries in the West in particular today, where it's like anathema to be old almost, you know, and it's like a sin to be old. Of course it's not. In, actually in Islam, as in many Eastern cultures and other cultures around the world, being old is a, is a sign of respect, it's a sign of knowledge, and uh, you know, old people actually reap a lot of benefits you know, when they reach the, the, that part of their life um, from the rest of society. So it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an age of respectability and people you know, look up to the old and uh, the, it's, it's something to look forward to as well. It's not just you know, creaky bones and, <laughs> and pains all over. <laughs> How many stories we were told of wise old men you know, that, uh, yes. that provided great insight. And I suppose uh, it's the issue of visiting that grey hair looks distinguished as well, doesn't it? That's the other thing which is often told. You see, uh, you're saying that and looking at me. Well, I'm very distinguished. That, and, uh, I but particularly it, it, commend how your cap <laughs> blends in with your hair as well, uh, Dr. Saib. Doesn't, don't they say go, the golden years? Absolutely. The golden years of, uh, of one's life. So, I mean, once man has got beyond his responsibilities mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, uh, he has a time to relax, to enjoy that perhaps to enjoy his children, perhaps to enjoy his grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And we see that, that people in these later years actually, as Jahangir Sahib has said, are the well-respected members of society and their families, and uh, well-deserved after having lived a life of um, maybe extreme, yeah. So this is something that we find that old is gold. Just as a sort of final element on this though, Dr. Saab, I suppose a question is also, Wasim Saab's asking about the 
you know, that God is there as a caring God, a merciful God. Um, yet, quite often, and it's not just true of old age, but it's more prevalent in old age. Ailments are more, you know, obvious. Disease, you know, certain conditions are, are get, and people struggle with that mm. as well. Mm. That, and yet, God, as our Maker, uh, as a you know, merciful God, sees people struggling. And I, reading into Wasim Saab's question, perhaps when he says, "Would it not be better if there's no old age and related suffering?" That by relating the two, he's suggesting that because of that age, there are certain diseases, there are certain factors in health which are impacted. You know, this, this thought often crosses people's mind of suffering in society, suffering in human beings, suffering in children, and then suffering in old age. Because we are so, so short-sighted, this is, this is the reason why this creeps coming up in our mind. We know that uh, the overall canvas of life is a much wider and bigger canvas, and this is perhaps a dot, an iota on one corner that the life we will have on, on this earth, whereas the life to come is an everlasting life. And that is the life that will be uh, reflective of the pleasures that God Almighty will have upon us. So it is because of that uh, aspect of the life to come that this is insignificant, in fact, as far as suffering in this world is concerned. So we should look for what we are sending forth for, for our next life. This is what the Holy Quran says. And the fact that we have to suffer in this life is perhaps insignificant when we consider the overall uh, canvas of our life. Indeed, and I suppose from a sort of Islamic perspective, our questioner was asking, you know, one thing Islam does do is there's great, as I said in my, when I was posing the question, reverence and respect, that our elders, that there is Islamic prescription on that, obedience to parents, respect for parents, respect for parents in their old age. Um, those are real Islamic values which uh, we seek to inculcate in everyone as well. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.